If you would, please take out your Bibles and turn to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Last week we're in a pastoral letter as he wrote to Titus, and today we're going to be in his letter to the church in and around Ephesus. As we turn to God's Word, let's turn to him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may your Word before us be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. And may your greater glory be our supreme concern through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, we are here at the end of our two-week mini-series. I mean, it began last week, it'll end this week. The Banners of Truth. Now, the idea, as I mentioned last week for the title, is the banners up here to my right and to my left. And what are they presenting or representing? Biblical truth. Now, some of you, as I mentioned, may be familiar with the Banner of Truth Trust. It's a parachurch organization in the United Kingdom that was founded in the 1950s for, quote, the advancement and dissemination of the knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. Now, indeed, grace and peace here is a place where God is gathering and growing His people, but also sending His people out, sending His people out to be witnesses to the truth of the the gospel, to help people grow in their knowledge and understanding of the Christian faith. Last week, with number one, we were in Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, for grace has appeared, and we saw through that text why grace matters. And what grace does, grace saves, grace trains, and grace orients. In particular, we saw not what grace is, but who grace is. Grace is a person. And then we took a look at how grace works, how the gospel believed and lived out changes lives. Well, today we move from grace has appeared to peace has arrived. Paul, the apostle, starts and finishes his letters with grace and peace. He starts all of them with grace and peace, and he finishes many of them with grace and peace. They are the bookends, in particular, of this letter to the Ephesians. He starts off with grace and peace, and he ends to be perfectly symmetrical with peace and grace. Grace and peace, Paul is bringing both the new and old covenant, both the Greek and the Hebrew worlds together um, uh, charis, grace being a Greek word and, and shalom, um, peace, a Hebrew word. And we've seen and are seeing how grace and peace is the cause and the effect of the gospel. Because grace has appeared, peace has arrived. The name of our church, the good news of God's grace and peace in Jesus Christ serves as both an anchor holding this church to the historic Christian faith, as well as an engine driving us out into the community with this good news. Some of the men of the church were at Fairhaven Rescue Mission uh, this past Friday evening where we serve once a month, and um, James Knight spoke, and he uh, started out by quoting a song lyric, Well, I found a man after my own heart, because I want to start with a 1955 folksy song, Let There Be Peace on Earth. Some of you may remember that. 
Here it goes. And let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Let there be peace on earth, the peace that was meant to be. With God as our Father, brothers all are we. Let me walk with my brother in perfect harmony. Let peace begin with me. Let this be the moment now. With every step I take, let this be my solemn vow. To take each moment and live each moment in peace eternally. Let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me. Now, I believe this folksy song captures the longing of every person. People want peace on earth in general. And most everybody I know wants peace in their lives in particular. They want not just the war to be over, the conflict to be done, but people are tired and they just want some peace and quiet. I want this relationship to be fixed. You also know many people, and you've said it yourself probably, I have no peace about fill in the blank. Now, while expressing this universal sentiment, there's just one small problem with this song. But a small problem for this song is really a big problem for us. Because peace cannot begin with us. If anything, it isn't the making of peace that begins with us, but rather it's the breaking of peace that begins with us. Peace on earth and peace in our lives, true, lasting peace has to come to us from the outside. It doesn't begin with us, but it most certainly does come to us in a most unexpected way. And we see that in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Now, Ephesus was a wealthy port city. It was the capital of the Roman province of Asia Minor, now located in modern-day Turkey. And from Paul's house arrest in the early 60s AD in Rome, Paul wrote to the churches in and around Ephesus this letter to strengthen their faith, to encourage them in the gospel. Here Paul the Jew is writing primarily to Ephesian Gentiles, former pagans. Earlier in chapter 1, in fact we read it downstairs in our prayer meeting, Paul prays that they would know the hope and the riches and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And in chapter 2 he provides two evidences of the greatness of that power. In verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2, he provides the evidence of God raising the dead to life. And then in verses 11 through 22 that we will be looking at in making the two one. He focuses first on the individual and then the corporate, the church. Here we see and will see God's power to restore broken human life and broken human community. Join with me now as I read verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, 
and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God and in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by His Spirit. Let's look at a quick summary of the text using the very structure of the text itself. Verses 11 and 12, who we once were. Here's a portrait of an alienated humanity, separated from God, strangers having no hope and without God. This portrait is one of alienation, of estrangement. But then we move from who we once were into verses 13 through 18 and what Jesus Christ has done. Here is a portrait of the peacemaking Christ. Through the cross, Paul is saying that Jesus made peace and through the cross, He preaches peace. And because of what Jesus Christ has done, there's been a change. And now we see in verses 19 through 22 who we have now become. Here's a portrait no longer of an alienated humanity, but rather of God's new society. It's a portrait of the church where His people are citizens in God's kingdom, members of God's family, and building blocks being built into God's temple. Who we once were, what Jesus Christ has done, and who we have now become. That's the structure and the organization of the text. Right in the middle is what Jesus Christ has done. And what Jesus has done is determined by who He is. Just like we saw with Titus and Grace. Remember our series from Mark. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? Well, in answer to the question, who is Jesus? Paul in our passage says this. He himself is our peace. Verse 14. He himself is our peace. Peace. Now, the fun thing is when you're translating this from the original language into, say, English, you get to see that this is emphatic. It's underlined. It's in bold. It's in italics. 
In other words, Paul is wanting to say Jesus himself is our peace and there is no other. It's him alone. Paul the Jew, Paul the Pharisee knows Isaiah 9, 6. The Prince of Peace, Isaiah writes about. He now knows Jesus, the Prince of Peace. He knows the minor prophet Micah who said there is a ruler coming from Bethlehem and he shall be their peace. And because he himself is peace, Paul says, he can make peace. And because he himself is peace, Paul says, he can preach peace. Now we're going to spend the next few minutes thinking about the implications of the declaration that Jesus Christ is our peace. In other words, we're going to consider the so what of the reality of this declaration that Jesus Christ is our peace. The focus of our text has to do with the creation of one new man in Christ, the reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. And in order to get there, I want us to think first about this. There can be no peace between people unless there is peace within people. And there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. Let me say that again. There can be no peace between people until there is peace within people. And there will be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. Now, if Jesus Christ is our peace, then I believe we can see from our text that at least three things are true. First, our relationship to God is restored. From the text, we see it in the text. Now, some things in the Bible are hard to understand, I admit it. But not all things. And here is something that's not hard to understand. Our relationship to God is restored. Look at this. In verse 13, we've been brought near. Jesus has reconciled us both to God through the cross. Through Him, that is Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We are now citizens of the kingdom, members of the household. We are living stones being brought together. In Colossians chapter 1, there's another passage where Paul speaks about the peacemaking work of Jesus on the cross. Beginning in verse 18 of Colossians 1, Paul is speaking about Jesus and says this, And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The work of Jesus on the cross. Um, step back with me and think about this. I think there used to be a, an old musical group called Public Enemy. Public Enemy. Well, for those outside of Christ, public enemy number one, the biggest and worst enemy that anyone can have or does have is God. You see, the fall of man into sin created a war 
between sin and righteousness, between uh, glory and filth, between the rightful Lord of all creation and various ways that people try to be lords of their own lives. For someone outside of Christ, their biggest enemy is God Himself. And yet, on the cross, Jesus did something. Robert Lethem in his book, The Work of Christ, says this, By His propitiatory sacrifice, that is His exhausting the wrath of God on the cross, Christ has brought us out of a state of enmity with God into friendship. The original fellowship that Adam enjoyed with God before the fall has been restored. We are now at peace with Him. Indeed, Paul in his book, his letter to the Roman church in chapter 5 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. So one thing we see is that our relationship with God is restored. And second, if Jesus Christ is our peace, then not only is our relationship with God restored, but also our relationship to ourself is at rest. Now, where do you see that? I mean, are, are we going to turn the corner now and, and find a self-focus? Well, you know, don't be afraid of a focus like that. It's in Scripture in a lot of places. And I believe here we see it in the first ten verses of chapter 2. By grace through faith, you are saved. Paul wants the church to understand that salvation is not of works, but it's by grace through faith. We are no longer exhausted because of having to work our way to God because God has come to us. We are no longer weighed down by guilt. Guilt has been lifted. Guilt has been removed by Christ. My friends, are you exhausted right now? I mean, physically, I think most of us are exhausted. The demands of just living. Are, are you weighed down? Many of you have burdens of sickness, of relatives that you're caring for, of difficult relationships at work. You are exhausted and you are weighed down physically, mentally. But through the work of Christ, because He Himself is our peace. Our relationship with ourself is now at rest. The exhaustion spiritually is gone. The weighing down spiritually has been removed. The work of Christ on the cross, Paul is emphasizing, it not only shows us who God is, but also who we are. John Stott in his magnificent work, The Cross of Christ, says this, Before we can begin to see the cross as, done, as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. How does this exhaustion and this weight removed? At the cross... The cross is offensive. It either hardens someone or it humbles someone. Folks either walk away from the cross or they stand before the cross. Because at the cross we recognize that we are so sinful that Christ 
had to die for us. It humbles us out of our pride because, friends, pride is exhausting. Pride is weighing down. But at the cross, we see we are not only so sinful, but we are also so loved that Jesus was glad to die for us. Here we are assured out of our fear, fear that exhausts us, fear that weighs us down. Here we see peace with God provides the peace of God. In Christ, the believer has eternal peace with God. And because of this, the believer now has the peace of God. Peace in the midst of trials, trouble. Jesus, in talking to His disciples before His death, talked about leaving them with peace, giving them peace. He reminded them in John 16 that in this world, you will have trouble, but in me you will have peace. And after the resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples. And in John chapter 20, three times, three times, Jesus says to his disciples, Peace be with you. Jesus is saying, Peace be with you because I am with you. And Paul would in, the chat, in his letter to the Philippians say, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That objective peace that Jesus provides because of his work on the cross gets played out through that, as it were, subjective peace. The peace of God that guards your hearts and minds. Now third, if Jesus Christ is our peace, then we demonstrate and declare the reality of being in a restored relationship with God and being at rest with ourselves through our relationship with one another. Relationships that are once and for all reconciled and also in time are being reconciled. Because we see here our relationship with one another in the church is reconciled. It's recreated. It's restored. Paul's center of gravity in this passage is talking about Jesus making Jew and Gentile one, creating in himself one new man. And this is not Democrat or Republican or Cavaliers and Warriors or Bengals and Steelers or Hatfields and McCoys or North and South. This is Jew and Gentile, the most unsurmountable division in all the ancient world and in Christ the two were brought together because Paul speaks of him abolishing the dividing wall of hostility Paul would be familiar with the sign in the temple in Jerusalem where Gentiles could only go so far the outer court and then it was Jews only and then even in the holy of holies it was the high priest only the sign said no trespassing as it were but it's been abolished. He's abolished the law of commandments and ordinances. The ceremonial law that kept Jew and Gentile apart. A good thing God's law in the hands of sinful men had become that which separates and calls His people to believe they are superior to the other. And so here we see the purpose of the cross is to restore the broken human being 
but also the broken human community. Again, the cross is offensive. It either humbles you or it hardens you. It's not just to save you, but also to create one new people whose one defining characteristic is that they have all been washed by the blood. K. Coles James, who was President George W. Bush's um, head of the um, uh, Office of Personnel Management and a leader in the state government of Virginia, said this, I don't care about the color of your skin, but whether or not you've been washed by the blood of Jesus. Christians are a band of brothers and sisters, a band of blood brothers. In his book, Love in Hard Places, D.A. Carson says this, the church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ and owe Him a common allegiance. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. Because my friends, at the cross, the ground is level for Jew and Gentile. And when Jew and Gentile, where all kinds of different people are standing at the foot of the cross, it is really hard to look down upon one another when you're looking up to the cross. And so the question in the church, this new society that God is building not only around the world, but even here in Florence, Kentucky, the question is this. It's not where are you from, but where are you going? Now some of you have heard of Matthew Henry. He wrote a very famous commentary of the Bible and he lived in the 1700s. It's a very old commentary and many of you may have it. His father's name was Philip Henry. And the story goes that uh, uh, Matthew's parents were courting. They were dating. And unfortunately, Matthew's father, Philip, was from the wrong side of the tracks. The girl who he was dating, who was going to be Matthew Henry's mother one day, was from Society Hill. At one point, the parents of Matthew Henry's mother came to her and said, quote, this Philip Henry who you are dating, we're concerned. We don't know where he's from. We don't know who his parents are. We don't know what part of the city he's really from. We don't know where he's from. She looked at them and said, I don't know where he's from either, but I know where he's going. Our church, grace and peace, it matters little where you're from. It matters little what happened to you, what you did or what was done to you. What matters is where you're going and the change of direction in your life only takes place when you meet Jesus and are washed by His blood. Here at Grace and Peace is the power of God on display. Our unity is not created by outward appearance. 
but rather by inward reality. And over time, our internal unity will become more and more externally visible as we pray for one another, as we encourage one another, as we uh, teach one another, um, uh, come alongside and minister to one another. Here in our passage, we see that the peace, the peace of the cross changes you. It changes your relationship to God. It changes your relationship to yourself. It changes your relationship to others. Grace and peace do not come from within us, but rather they come to us from the outside and they come from a most unexpected and unlikely source. A poor baby, a homeless man, a man who was abandoned by his friends and killed by his enemies. Just as grace appeared because Jesus appeared, so also peace arrived because Jesus arrived. Remember the angel's announcement, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Who is God pleased with? People that think they can make it on their own. People that think they can keep the rules. Who is God pleased with? God is pleased with those who run to Jesus Christ. Find rest, my soul, in God alone. There can be no peace with, between people unless there is peace within people. And there can be no peace within people until they are at peace with God. I think it's good to ask ourselves that question every now and then. Are we, am I, are you at peace with God? The great church father of the 4th and 5th centuries, Augustine, said this, for thou hast made us for thyself, and restless is our heart until it comes to rest in thee. My friends, is your heart restless today? Are you exhausted trying to get right with God? Are you weighed down with guilt that seems inescapable? Our restless hearts are put to rest by the appearance of grace and the arrival of peace in Jesus Christ. These two banners up front point to one person. The grace of God and the peace of God is found nowhere else other than in Jesus Christ. May God be pleased to continue to extend His grace and peace to the people and the community here at Grace and Peace. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for providing for us what we could never achieve for ourselves. We thank you for your mercy and grace, not giving us what we deserve and instead giving us what we don't deserve. We thank you, Father, for putting our relationship to you back together, putting our relationship with ourselves at rest and, 
and, and reconciling and renewing and restoring our relationship with one another. Oh, Father, would you be pleased to continue to make your grace and peace known among us within these walls and through us to the community around us that's, that apart from Christ is without hope and without God. Father, help us to be grateful and thankful for providing for us what we truly and absolutely need. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.